This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Bernard Shaw by G. K. Chesterton Section 6, Chapter 4, Part 2 The Critic it is odd that Bernard Shaw's chief error or insensibility should have been the instrument of his noblest affirmation. The denunciation of Shakespeare was a mere misunderstanding, but the denunciation of Shakespeare's pessimism was the most splendidly understanding of all his utterances. This is the greatest thing in Shaw, a serious optimism, even a tragic optimism. Life is a thing too glorious to be enjoyed. To be is an exacting and exhausting business. The trumpet, though inspiring, is terrible. Nothing that he ever wrote is so noble as his simple reference to the sturdy man who stepped up to the keeper of the Book of Life and said, Put down my name, sir. It is true that Shaw called this heroic philosophy by wrong names and buttressed it with false metaphysics that was the weakness of the age. The temporary decline of theology had involved the neglect of philosophy and all fine thinking, and Bernard Shaw had to find shaky justifications in Schopenhauer for the sons of God shouting for joy. He called it the will to live, a phrase invented by Prussian professors who would like to exist, but can't. Afterwards he asked people to worship the life force, as if one could worship a hyphen. But though he covered it with crude new names, which are now fortunately crumbling everywhere like bad mortar, he was on the side of the good old cause, the oldest and the best of all causes, the cause of creation against destruction, the cause of yes against no, the cause of the seed against the stony earth, and the star against the abyss. His misunderstanding of Shakespeare arose largely from the fact that he is a Puritan, while Shakespeare was spiritually a Catholic. The former is always screwing himself up to see the truth. The latter is often content that truth is there. The Puritan is only strong enough to stiffen. The Catholic is strong enough to relax. Shaw, I think, has entirely misunderstood the pessimistic passages of Shakespeare. They are flying moods which a man with a fixed faith can afford to entertain. That all is vanity, that life is dust, and love is ashes. These are frivolities, these are jokes, that a Catholic can afford to utter. He knows well enough that there is a life that is not dust, and a love that is not ashes. But just as he may let himself go more than the Puritan in the matter of enjoyment, so he may let himself go more than the Puritan in the matter of melancholy. The sad exuberances of Hamlet are merely like the glad exuberances of Falstaff. This is not conjecture, it is the text of Shakespeare. In the very act of uttering his pessimism, Hamlet admits that it is a mood and not the truth. Heaven is a heavenly thing, only to him it seems a foul congregation of vapors. Man is the paragon of animals, only to him he seems a quintessence of dust. Hamlet is quite the reverse of a skeptic. He is a man whose strong intellect 
believes much more than his weak temperament can make vivid to him. But this power of knowing a thing without feeling it, this power of believing a thing without experiencing it, this is an old Catholic complexity, and the Puritan has never understood it. Shakespeare confesses his moods mostly by the mouths of villains and failures, but he never sets up his moods against his mind. His cry of vanitas vanitatum is itself only a harmless vanity. Readers may not agree with my calling him Catholic with a big C, but they will hardly complain of my calling him Catholic with a small one. And that is here the principal point. Shakespeare was not, in any sense, a pessimist. He was, if anything, an optimist so universal as to be able to enjoy even pessimism. And this is exactly where he differs from the Puritan. The true Puritan is not squeamish. The true Puritan is free to say, damn it. But the Catholic Elizabethan was free, on passing provocation, to say, damn it all. It need hardly be explained that Bernard Shaw added to his negative case of a dramatist to be depreciated as corresponding affirmative case of a dramatist to be exalted and advanced. He was not content with so remote a comparison as that between Shakespeare and Bunyan. In his vivacious weekly articles in the Saturday Review, the real comparison upon which everything turned was the comparison between Shakespeare and Ibsen. He early threw himself with all possible eagerness into the public disputes about the great Scandinavian, and though there was no doubt whatever about which side he supported, there was much that was individual in the line he took. It is not our business here to explore that extinct volcano. You may say that anti-Ibsenism is dead, or you may say that Ibsen is dead. In any case, that controversy is dead, and death, as the Roman poet says, can alone confess of what small atoms we are made. The opponents of Ibsen largely exhibited the permanent qualities of the populace, that is, their instincts were right and their reasons wrong. They made the complete controversial mistake of calling Ibsen a pessimist, whereas indeed his chief weakness is a rather childish confidence in mere nature and freedom and a blindness, either of experience or of culture, in the matter of original sin. In this sense, Ibsen is not so much a pessimist as a highly crude kind of optimist. Nevertheless, the man in the street was right in his fundamental instinct, as he always is. Ibsen, in his pale northern style, is an optimist, but for all that he is a depressing person. The optimism of Ibsen is less comforting than the pessimism of Dante just as a Norwegian sunrise, however splendid, is colder than a southern night. But on the side of those who fought for Ibsen, there was also a disagreement, and perhaps also a mistake. The vague army of the advanced, an army which advances in all directions, were united in feeling that they ought to be the friends of Ibsen, because he also was advancing somewhere, somehow. But they were also seriously impressed by Flaubert, by Oscar Wilde, and all the rest who told them that the work of art was in another universe from ethics and social good. Therefore many, I think most, of the Ibsenites praised the Ibsen plays merely as Chosis' views, 
aesthetic affirmations of what can be without any reference to what ought to be. Mr. William Archer himself inclined to this view, though his strong sagacity kept him in a haze of healthy doubt on the subject. Mr. Walkley certainly took this view, but this view Mr. George Bernard Shaw abruptly and violently refused to take. With the full Puritan combination of passion and precision, he informed everybody that Ibsen was not artistic, but immoral, that his dramas were didactic, that all great art was didactic, that Ibsen was strongly on the side of some of his characters and strongly against others, that there was preaching and public spirit in the work of good dramatists, and that if this were not so, dramatists and all other artists would be mere panderers of intellectual debauchery to be locked up as the puritans locked up the stage players no one can understand bernard shaw who does not give full value to this early revolt on his behalf of ethics against the ruling school of l'art pour l'art it is interesting because it is connected with other ambitions in the man especially with that which has made him somewhat vainer of being a parish councillor than of being one of the most popular dramatists in Europe. But its chief interest is again to be referred to our stratification of the psychology. It is a lover of true things, rebelling for once against merely new things. It is the Puritan suddenly refusing to be the mere progressive. But this attitude obviously laid on the ethical lover of Ibsen a not inconsiderable obligation. If the new drama had an ethical purpose, what was it? And if Ibsen was a moral teacher, what the deuce was he teaching? Answers to this question, answers of manifold brilliancy and promise, were scattered through all the dramatic criticisms of those years on the Saturday Review. But even Bernard Shaw grew tired after a time of discussing Ibsen only in connection with the current pantomime or the latest musical comedy. It was felt that so much sincerity and fertility of explanation justified a concentrated attack, and in 1891 appeared the brilliant book called The Quintessence of Ibsenism, which some have declared to be merely the quintessence of Shaw. However this may be, it was in fact and profession the quintessence of Shaw's theory of the morality or propaganda of Ibsen. The book itself is much longer than the book I am writing, and as is only right in so spirited an apologist, every paragraph is provocative. I could write an essay on every sentence which I accept and three essays on every sentence which I deny. Bernard Shaw himself is a master of compression. He can put a conception more compactly than any other man alive. It is therefore rather difficult to compress his compression. One feels as if he were trying to extract a beef essence from Bovarel. But the shortest form in which I can state the idea of the quintessence of Ibsenism is that it is the idea of distrusting ideals which are universal in comparison with facts which are miscellaneous. The man whom he attacks throughout he calls the idealist. That is the man who permits himself to be mainly moved by a moral generalization. Actions, he says, are to be judged by their effect on happiness and not by their conformity to any ideal. 
As we have already seen, there is a certain inconsistency here, for while Shaw had always chucked all ideals overboard, the one he had chucked first was the ideal of happiness. Passing this, however, for the present, we may mark the above as the most satisfying summary. If I tell a lie, I am not to blame myself for having violated the ideal of truth, but only for perhaps have gotten myself into a mess and made things worse than they were before. If I have broken my word, I need not feel as my fathers did, that I have broken something inside of me, as one who breaks a blood vessel. It all depends on whether I have broken up something outside of me, as one who breaks up an evening party. If I shoot my father, the only question is whether I have made him happy. I must not admit the idealistic conception that the mere shooting of my father might possibly make me unhappy. We are to judge of every individual case as it arises, apparently without any social summary or moral ready reckoner at all. The golden rule is that there is no golden rule. We must not say that it is right to keep promises, but that it may be right to keep this promise. Essentially, it is anarchy. Nor is it very easy to see how a state could be very comfortable which was socialist in all its public morality and anarchist in all its private. But if it is anarchy, it is anarchy without any of the abandon and exuberance of anarchy. It is a worried and conscientious anarchy, an anarchy of painful delicacy and even caution. For it refuses to trust in traditional experiments or plainly trodden tracks. Every case must be considered anew from the beginning, and yet considered with the most wide-eyed care for human welfare. Every man must act as if he were the first man made. Briefly, we must always be worrying about what is best for our children, and we must not take one hint or rule of thumb from our fathers. Some think that this anarchism would make a man tread down mighty cities in his madness. I think it would make a man walk down the street as if he were walking on eggshells. I do not think this experiment in opportunism would end in frantic license. I think it would end in frozen timidity. If a man was forbidden to solve moral problems by moral science or the help of mankind, his course would be quite easy. He would not solve the problems. The world, instead of being a knot so tangled as to need unraveling, would simply become a piece of clockwork too complicated to be touched. I cannot think that this untutored worry was what Ibsen meant. I have my doubts as to whether it was what Shaw meant, but I do not think that it can be substantially doubted that it was what he said. In any case, it can be asserted that the general aim of the work was to exalt the immediate conclusions of practice against the general conclusions of theory. Shaw objected to the solution of every problem in a play being by its nature a general solution, applicable to all other such problems. He disliked the entrance of a universal justice at the end of the last act, treading down all the personal ultimatums and all the varied certainties of men. He disliked the god from the machine, because he was from a machine. But even without the machine, he tended to dislike the god, because a god is more general than a man. 
His enemies have accused Shaw of being anti-domestic, a shaker of the roof tree, but in this sense Shaw may be called almost madly domestic. He wishes each private problem to be settled in private without reference to sociological ethics, and the only objection to this kind of gigantic casuistry is that the theatre is really too small to discuss it. It would not be fair to play David and Goliath on a stage too small to admit Goliath, and it is not fair to discuss private morality on a stage too small to admit the enormous presence of public morality, that character which has not appeared in a play since the Middle Ages, whose name is every man and whose honor we have all in our keeping. End of section 6, chapter 4